Just start at the at the end, and it 
reads as follows. Um, I have learned some important things in my journey. Uh, perhaps the first is to recognize that as human beings, we find our own human worth in giving service to other fellow human beings. If that social contribution is missing, there's nothing that sets us apart from any other life form. For those who are from my background of poverty and deprivation, as you improve your circumstances and make social advances, if you forget where you came from and do not give back, you will have lost your soul. Everything will have been meaningless. It is important to pay it forward for the next generation. Your measure of achieving social advancement is all about measuring this alongside the social reality of others and ensuring that they have the opportunity to advance as as well. I think it's that kind of unselfishness where, where Patrick Good with excitement and glee tell us about his discoveries um, via Facebook and they'd be long. I mean I promise those are two hundred page kind of history lessons and you'd kinda of imbibe on every word. Wow, that was cool. That was cool. Um, yeah, so I got a funny feeling this book would have been like two thousand pages if 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 you had purged yourself of everything. Is everything purged in two hundred pages? <laughs> Originally it was about two thousand pages of ways of money with her great help. Uh, I added the score about fifty percent So yes, it was a lot longer. Yeah, um, and, and I can say some some of the stories are not necessarily told. I don't know if you want to just like leave it there hanging in the air for us to make our own conclusions. Look, in a, in a way, um, you know, I, I forewarned right at the beginning when I quote from Octavio Paz, you know, who talks about the story being between yes and no, between here and there. Looks like our lives uh, uh, were. Um, I did braid out on quite a lot of the stories. Um, uh, but, sorry, did I Sorry, closer to the, 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 the mouth. Okay, so. I did try to um, um, use quite a few anecdotes and so on, but that just makes it long. And publishers are down to 310 pages, you know, and you you you, you therefore can't wax lyrical like I do on social media and, and just go on and on and on. So there's there's some some stuff that would be lost in editing. There's 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 other stuff that I also sometimes don't feel I have the right to tell because they involve other people's lives, including my children's lives. I can't tell their stories for them. That's, that, that's, that's wrong. Or, or my various life partners. Um, and then there are some people who were treacherous towards us and are living and are around us today. And um, it's difficult to, to be always naming names because then you have to follow through with court cases and all sorts of things like this. So you 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 have to keep a lot of things in mind when you when you're going to go and write on things. Uh, what I found, I mean look the writing journey itself uh, was in some ways quite traumatic. Um, cathartic but also breaking up lots and lots of things. You think deeply and you don't write everything that comes into your thoughts, but they come out of your eyes. So you find you misting up and the water on your your keyboard and so on and that and 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 then you've got to take a deep breath and just step away for a while and 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 breathe you know catch your breath otherwise you start hyperventilating and so on. That's what what happens when you go into 
the past in the kind of way that I did. But what I tried to do was just to get it all out on paper first. And that is a <laughs> 2,000 you know, pages, if you like. Um, and, and, and that's where really, you know, I have this marvelous, you just met a year, marvelous commissioning editor who worked with me on the last book as well. And, um, and she helped me. She's got a really great way about um, Ali, <laughs> talking about you, talking about here. Um, a, a, a way of, 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 um, of helping you to understand why you're going to drop some things out. Because when you write something, you're owning it. You very jealously hold it and you want it all to be there. And, um, and it's not all there. So it's, you're right. You, you will see a discerning reader, particularly from a similar background, is going to just know. There's things in between the lines. There's things that fall off at the end of the paragraph that, that instinctively you know. That, and so you've got that feeling. I, I know exactly. And you write about it. But uh, at the same time, you want to get a book out, and um, it's got a limitation to it, and that's where you have not just a, an editor, ultimately, because you also have an editor, but you have a commissioning editor who holds your hand and, and helps you wipe the tears away from your eyes sometimes <laughs> in, in this whole process, and I did get that um, um, from my commissioning editor, an absolute star. Wonderful. Oh, you... Um, <laughs> Talk about you talk about bravery. The commissioning editors spoke about bravery, and I think it's exactly that. To confront your demons, your past, your your questions, your irreconcilable kind of stuff with with family, especially in the manner that 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 you did. You speak about tears, and you speak about catharsis. Uh, what is that catharsis? For me, in, in, in some ways, the, the lifelong journey has always had cathartic moments. Um, from quite a young child, uh, when you're on your own, you tend to develop uh, an imaginary friend. Um, there's two of you within yourself, and they talk to each other. The one is wiser than the other. One makes lots of mistakes, and the other one pulls you up. And in a sense, that's also the catharsis. You're in very dark moments in your life, and you need to reach out. And I tell you the story of who my imaginary friend was. Um, uh, I suppose it doesn't harm to mention it. Uh, it won't spoil the read. But when I was about eight years old, one of the people that my mother would leave me with, uh, in, 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 you know, she worked in a laundry in uh, District 6, uh, cleaners and laundry. Um, up the road in Nile Street, Sewell uh, Street, there was a Holy Cross convent, and there were these German nuns. They were uh, there were there were two nuns. They were they were um, family sisters. They were blood sisters as well as being sisters of the Holy Cross. Um, they they were Swiss German, I think, and um, they would bring their laundry in. And so another told them their problem. Her problem, you know, the inspectors come around and you're not allowed to have a child with you. All of this and you get took off and then. I've got all sorts of people, but these two nuns were the one of them. Her name was Mary Martin, and I go back there with her. She had this devotion to a um, a man who lived 500 years ago, black man, Saint Martin de Porres um, from Lima in uh, uh, Peru, and um, and you know she had this amazing kind of relationship with this this saint. And she would say to me, you know, it started off. I mean, I was just 
to rule that there was a white woman kneeling in front of a black man in South Africa and asking him for advice and so on. And I'd been brought up, you know, in the normal way of saying mantras as prayers, you know, Hail Mary and all this sort of thing. Not this, as she sort of says to me, you know, um, ask Martin to, to help you and to be your friend and etc. etc. And I'm looking at her and I'm looking at the saint and I mentioned in the book, I, I almost see this statue giving me a wink, like, you know. And, um, and then she told me about Martin. That's where my magnificent obsession about slavery used to be started because Martin was a, a son of a, a, an African slave woman and a Spanish soldier in Peru. And, um, and then she told me, you know, your people here also have this background. And she explained to me what slavery was, but in like children's language. And, um, and then Marty, as I call him, became my imaginary friend. In all of those, when I was in those deep dark moments in the children's asylum and so on, and and going to, there was always now a name and a face to place with this second me that would help me, and that's where the cathartic moments came, where you know things were so overwhelming and you turn and talk to somebody that's not there that you've become such good friends with. Um, uh, it might seem very strange to people, but it's. It, it, that's one of the ways kids can cope, and, and, and that's the way I cope through many, very, very difficult dog moments. There's so many thoughts, and I'm supposed and not to. And that off, by the way. Yep. <laughs> I'm supposed not to tell you anything, but being dropped off at that asylum was, was a really hard sort of story, and not even being able to say goodbye to your, to your mother. It's now called Nazareth. I believe, and it's it's doing wonderful work. I want I want to take you back to Patrick William Tarek Malay, um, your real identity, as you would want it restored in in 1997. Um, is Zinto a means to that end? Now, when when one embraces um, in the political sense the resistance, right, uh, that word resistance means a lot more than just the political sense in my life. But when it came to that, I at that time still had this name, the Huda, which, which when we first met, that I met you as the Huda. My, my, my name was uh, changed when I was like 41 years old. Um, and my comrades around me, you know, uh, they dropped the the, the the and it was Huda or Kudus. And uh, 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 <laughs> and uh, and of course the uh, uh, the uh, uh, term is Isidro, you know things, um, and and uh, he's late now. But then we had this wonderful singer. We had a group called um, um, a cultural ensemble. Wonderful, you know. Uh, don't you think you've, you guys seen that film, Shaka Zulu? Mm -hmm. That tall guy that's in Shaka Zulu. Now, Ndondo was the splitting image. He's this tall, kind of almost noble looking man, and that, and uh, he, he died in the motor car accident later. But he was the one that started this thing, you know, uh, uh, Zinto, and then it took off. And, 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 and so. Besides Zinto, of course, when you're involved in politics, so there's a clandestine nature of all of this, you also have other names. I was Oscar uh, uh, within the Communist Party, uh, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, Luis Emilio, and, uh, uh, and, and Comrade Fact, and, and then there was the Kuda. And of course, you know, um, 
we traveled on other documents, uh, UN travel documents, and so on and that. And so, hey, you, and quite, uh, it's something that I could respond to as well. Um, but I have this moment then in, what was it, 1997, where, uh, oh, I'm going to give too much of the book away. But um, it, look, I've been brought up to this. My father had died in a motorbike accident when I was small and I was fatherless and so on. I didn't get my mother's surname and I didn't get my father's surname. I had gotten the surname of a man that my mother had been married to in the 1930s and 40s. And, um, and uh, in my teens, I first became aware that, in fact, there was another name that I should be known by. And, and that's not an atypical so-called colored experience, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just add. I get the sense that you've divorced the Huda but not necessarily on bad terms. Absolutely. Look, you can't go through 40 years of life with a particular persona, with a whole lot of experiences that, you know, uh, indelible experiences, and then just say goodbye to the brand that carried you through those years. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, uh, it, 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 it's a multiple personality thing of a, of a, of a non-medical um, type. Um, you know, I I, uh, I found in the course of the journey too that I had um, eight other siblings or seven other siblings that I didn't know. My mother had uh, five, and and my father, as far as we know so far, uh, people do keep tumbling up. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 he had four wives and, and and children which he abandoned along the way, and so on. And so, also ours was a discovery journey. You know, the day that I got a phone number of somebody that I was told could be your sister in Australia, and I phoned up this woman, what the hell do you say? Uh, 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 look, I'm phoning from Cape Town, and I think that must story. be your brother, you know? And she goes, <gasps> another one? You know, that <laughs> and then she tells me, like, you know, her journey. And her, our, our siblings are still even now, it's hard to kind of... Um, their journey and, and, and how they all found each other. And at one stage, I lived in a foster family only two streets away from a foster family uh, boarding house where some of my other siblings were. I didn't know they existed even. Um, you know, we may have passed. You know, I could quite literally have married my sister without knowing it. You know, that's, that's how how you know but as you say you know amongst poorer people working class people you you have these things um you know my story i you know Terence is not exceptional it's actually i think there are more people in the world with my story than there are of this happy families nuclear family um you know it, i'm not hitting it it's something that you know, I think I spent a lot of my life wishing it was like that. But um, uh, but I think the vast majority of, of I know with young black people, um, migrant labor system we had in this country, which forcibly removed people to live in hostels for nine tenths of their lives. And therefore there were children all over the show. And I know so many people who like me kept on discovering brothers and sisters. And 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 uh, uh, that was our reality, and I think it's a reality for uh, a lot of people. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that, that are thinking, and I'm most certainly 
one of them thinking, geez, my upbringing, no, no, nothing can be worse than my upbringing. And then I read your book. Mm. <laughs> and I was angry with me for being angry with me for a very long time. <laughs> we have clearly other people that have um, hectic, hectic experiences. And sometimes the drums are for our kids. Um, and maybe I also want to want to start there. And I want to ask to what extent you think Daniel, Manuel, um, and, and Vuyo, um, how, how, how are their lives, you know, given I was sometimes in clumsy pursuit of identity and belonging on, on, on our terms. Uh, what are we carrying over to the kids in the process of that foolhardy obsession with being us on our terms? Look, for all of, uh, well, political um, prisoners and exiles, families and so on, I think for every child there is a story. Uh, they are different stories, but they have a, a certain thread that flows through them that is the same. Um, these were extraordinary times we lived through and extraordinary experiences. Our children didn't, weren't the decision makers. We as the adults were the Although we were, we were, you know, I was twenty when I had my first child. We were, we were, we were, we were, we were teens in some ways. Um, we became parents. I had no nothing to model after um, in terms of parenting. So I had no parents, and then I was a parent, and then I was living in this kind of um, war world. My eldest son grew up without me ever being able to buy him a sweet presents, things like this, clothes. Um, uh, I was, in a sense, as an adult, a child of the movement, as much as they were the children of the movement. And that creates a different kind of family relationship. Um, it's certainly the children couldn't process it like we were processing it. And so they've had their own very rough journeys. Um, extremely rough journeys. I, I can't go into it all, but um, yeah, there's a lot of pain involved in it for them. I'm lucky in the sense that you know my children still open up to me and and talk to me, and they've gone through their angry moments too, and um, and uh, we've we've begun to find ourselves just like in the last eight years or so, find ourselves in a way which we hadn't found before because they were beginning to be able to understand the pain that I had taken through with me and the why that did the, the decisions I took and then why they had to go through these terribly difficult times too. But then there comes a point too when intellect uh, is overcome by trauma and those are things that we do wrestle with. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I can't talk more about it. No, there, sure. there are things. <laughs> I, I think it's about that, that intergeneral, in, intergenerational play that is just omnipresent, omnipresent, especially in so-called um, coloured history, social history, um, especially, and it remains present in our in our lives today. And the kind of courageous conversations that Patrick is having with us through this book is certainly going to contribute a great deal. To us confronting that that pain. Your mom is at the end of the book and she's at the start of the book. 
Um, and I'm not quite certain, you know, there's, there's like a love-hate thing happening, but I also get the sense here's this typical silver-colored matriarch that is uh, calling the shots, albeit that she drops you off at an asylum, and that's a painful moment for me. Um, I'm not quite certain, really, how you reconcile her in your pursuit of self. My mother was a very complex person. My mother was a very complex person, and she was also the, the saddest person I've ever known in my life. Mm. And a large part of my life was, or my mental processes, was trying to understand her. And ultimately, I saw in her two very different people. And my, my mom has three names, uh, three, three names, and I saw her as two of those names. There was Annie and there was Gladys. And they were two very, very different people. Um, and I always warmed to Annie. And I always was on a high wire balancing when it came to, to Gladys. And I start the book off with a a story which is a story that's uh, very ingrained in our family. My, my cousin, uh, Nessie, knows it about that green is not allowed in, in our homes as curtains, as clothes, as um, anything. And, and it's a tragic story, which I won't, you can read it in the book, but it involves uh, a car knocking over uh, my uh, eldest uh, uh, aunt, Nessie's, Nessie's grandma. Um, uh, 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 her firstborn um, child, uh, which was who was holding my mother's hand. My mother never ever got over that traumatic experience throughout her life, and then she had this very bad marriage to the Dakota fella, and um, and in that marriage um, there was also all sorts of trauma. She also had a very difficult father. Um, while my, my grandmother was colored, my, my grandfather was an, uh, an Englishman who, after six children, abandoned my grandmother and, and, and bugged off again. Um, but he was a heavy-handed man. He was in the military. And um, for punishment, they would be belted and then they would be put in a wet Hessian bag and hoisted up in a dark room kind of thing. So my mother had her bad childhood too. And because I was going through a bad childhood, I connected with little Annie uh, as going, to, so I understood that. Um, and there were things that I saw that I've always been making excuses for in my mind with my mom. And then when I got to into my teens, it became anger as certain issues became clear to me that I was being lied to and so on and so on. Trust was broken. Um, so up until then, I always thought of my mother as this Euro, working class Euro, self-sacrificing, doing everything to help her child and so on. And even in that terrible home, there was one time when we were being beaten while we had to scrub this passage and she just happened to turn up there, got down on her knees and was scrubbing with us. So there was this Euro mum. Then suddenly there was this mum that was telling me lies and so on and that and you had to wrestle with it. But then as my mother grew older, and I grew more mature and understanding. Um, I then turned to pity. And, and, you know, when my mom was, just before she died, 
she she didn't even recognize me anymore. You know, she was she had Alzheimer's and she was a bag of bones. I had to take her to the toilet and and clean her and put her into the bed before she died. And 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 how can you be angry anymore? Um, so it's this journey. It's a journey. And you're right to pick up that there's mixed messages. Um, and I guess there must be mixed messages for many relationships that people have. But um, I love my mother dearly, and I miss her very dearly. Um, it's Annie, I miss more than, than, than Gladdy. But um, uh, 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 I don't, uh, I always remember her daily. It's, it's, it's very deep thing. And, and I just need to know if, uh, are we reviewing the 2000 page book too? <laughs> because I could go on and on and on and on. What's my guidance here? Is it an hour? Is it five? You can go on a bit more. I no, think no, I, I've got plenty to ask. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is, is, is how you relate, and I'm jumping all around the book, how you relate to your mom at age 60 retiring, and I think she was earning 50 rand a month. And by your calculation, at the age of 13, when she started working, she earned about the same amount of money relative to, to, to the time. Yeah, it was a shilling a day, which was 10 cents a day at that time, which was about, if you calculated about 3 rand, 50 or 4 rand in, by the time that she was, so about 4 rand a day um, by the time she was uh, retiring. Which is a typical story uh, of, of our parents. Uh, your mom also a member of, of SAC too. And your class consciousness you gathered from her. How did that impact your life? So, you know, when, when my mom was working the 6-6, six, six, she worked for a company called Lawson and Kirk, and then later on they became the Lucy Brothers. Um, and um, she would be standing six days a week behind the a counter and taking in laundry and all of this kind of thing and I, as a child I witnessed this and I remember there was one time that you know the August had a children's page in the weekend August and uh, they were giving a rand prize for drawings and I drew a picture of my mom and I entitled it working mom that was my consciousness then they changed the name I was so <laughs> because it was my first experience of censorship. They said mummy boots. Um, and I specifically put working mum there because that is what I was paying tribute to. I got the one rand, but that still was the... But my mum used to take me with her when she went to union meetings. And, um, and I didn't know what was going on. And I guess my mother was there mainly for the tea and the biscuits and the salsa. You know, it, but that was how it was. Union was like church. You, go to union, you go to church, you know, it's just the same sort of thing, but it creates a, a consciousness that you belong to a particular class of people. Um, you also grow up with not liking rich people, <laughs> or, or let's put it this way, uh, you, you, you're always asking yourself why can they have and you can't. You know, you, you grow up with that kind of consciousness, the very basic of class consciousness. So, and then also in, in, in District 6, there used to be these um, communist lawyers, Sam Khan and, 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 and Harry Smitcher. And uh, my mother would always, whenever she had a problem, whatever, and everyone asked for, uh, I need to go see Mr. Smitcher. And, and, and Mr. Smitcher was, 
Mr. Stitcher said something, it was like God said something. You know? So you, as a kid, you realize, well, you know, here's this. So you, you grow up in, a, in another society as you're growing up as a teen, and you're hearing all of this anti-communist stuff. And, but for us, this was the man that helped us, was the communist. Um, and, and then again, in District 6, the issue of color, you know, there was Jewish people, there was Chinese people, uh, people called colored, people called natives, people, everybody was there and they were just people and they were interacting on a daily basis. And as a child, you, you know, remember, I don't have a father, I don't really even have a home. Much of my childhood was homeless, um, moving, you know, into foster homes and into rooms with my mother temporarily and then into the children's asylum and so on. But when I came to her, it was to District 6 that I came. And so there was this sense of identity with a place and with all of these colorful people, you know, in, in, in the world, the whole world was represented in District 6. All the religions of the world was there. And so even my, my earliest influences in terms of faith wasn't, wasn't mono. It was, you know, there was uh, Christian, there was Muslim, there was Buddhist, there was Jewish, um, there was there was the Dukum, uh, you know, who was quite an important figure as well. Um, and 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 you know, today I have a syncretic faith based on all of those things. Um, and uh, so I didn't have a fear of communism. I didn't have a, a, a fear of unions. I had an affinity to those growing up, and that was the class consciousness, the early seeds. And I was lucky then that we had a left-wing young Christian worker movement in the Catholic Church who also you know, took us as teens and helped to mold us. And then in trade school as well, we were taught about unions and that it was our duty to be a union member and to fight against past laws and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, 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 the intellectual aspect was, was, was reading there. And you know, my first actual history, uh, understanding of South African history kind of thing, the August at that time, on a weekend they would have this comic strip of, so every weekend you could buy a, a, a scrapbook and you could paste it in there. So they had Pixley Kaseme, they had Dr. Abdurrahman, they had Moses Kutani, they had all of, and I would collect these things and my mother would help me to collect these things. And that's how the consciousness develops over time. Um, but I suppose the greatest element of the consciousness was the different standard of living. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you saw rich people who were mainly white people, um, and they were poor people, and poor people were mainly people of color. And so that's how I grew up, and, and it molded me. So by the time I got to reading, I chose books that would reinforce those things uh, in, in my mind. There's a couple of things that, that kind of jumped out uh, for me at the age of 16, you were playing for an identity document. Um, and I'm just going to throw it at you and I want to see what you, what you respond to. Uh, it was conscripted to the army as well. I was fascinated to find that out. <laughs> and then 3 September 1976, it sounds really like a seminal moment uh, in the struggle for you on, on Adley Street. Um, and then eventually, Patrick would be wanted uh, for his crimes against the apartheid state. Um, he would be the most wanted, not most wanted, but a wanted gorilla, most wanted white gorilla, colored gorilla, it was Indian gorilla. 
Black. On all three, um, That's how ridiculous it was. One of my cousins, Gunny, you know, he was, he was a policeman. So he basically told us, you know, at that time, they would get monthly updated lists of wanted people that would be in every police station. But they were they were wanted in different categories. So there was a white list, a colored list, and a black list. He says, I was the only person that was on all three of them. <laughs> um, and, and, and that was because of the ambiguity. But we're going to give a lot away in the, uh, the book, but I have to explain the ambiguity to... to Do you to, really want to? No, 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 just, just the, the issue of where the army came in. And, and, and uh, um, when you're 16, you then, you know, have to get an ID. Everybody has to get an ID that, you know, if you want a job, you have to an ID number and so on and so on. And up until then, my life had been kind of in a non-racial bubble world, different, you know, small world of District 6, Salt River, Woodstock. And, and now suddenly, I was forced to confront a very real South African world that judges the book by the cover. So I go to home affairs and I say to them, yeah, I, I, I fill in the form. Don't say to them anything first, I fill in the form. And then it has the signal, what is your hand in the color. So this is where the prime, and her father knows, her, my cousin is Nessie's father. He had the same thing. He, uh, her father, looked like Nessie, total Indian looks. But he had a European ID before 1950 when this law came in. So, he was now finding people saying, but you've got a fraudulent ID, you know, you can't be a European in that. I mean, he had to also go, and he had, so there was something called a race classification board. And you had to go present yourself there and that, and I mean, and he was saying, no, we want to be colored, you know, because it's causing too much shit in his life. He can say, well, I'll just say the way he would have said, shove your European up your ass. <laughs> but I mean, the, so now I'm in the situation where I look, differently. I look more polite than average white person. So now the woman says to me, are you trying to be funny? You know, I say, what are you talking about? I said, you, you, you put in their color, you should be putting their color. I said, no, no, I put here what I want to put here. And uh, we have a whole ding dong. It goes on for a while. It's in the book. And then ultimately, they put other in the corner there and they say to me, look here, we'll give you a receipt. Use the receipt for your application in the meanwhile, this has to be decided on and you should go to the race classification board. I said, I'm not gonna do that. Um, I am, I'm saying that she, so she was doing this, you'll see, you'll see. But just as I'm about to leave, she says to me, you little communist, I know what your game is, Putty. You don't want to go to the army. So I said, of course I don't want to go to the bloody army. It's not my army at all, you know? And, but that's not what this whole thing about the identity is about. She says, oh, we'll see. You know, you think it's smart, we'll see. And this is how I ended up being arrested. Uh, well, it's a long story, I won't go the whole story, it's a long story, it's there in the book, where I then have to write to the military to state, I'm not white, and I refuse to take up arms, etc., etc. And they just send the letter back saying, you will. And then we go head to head and I ended up getting arrested and first interrogated by the military police over and over again, then by the security police in Pretoria and a whole range of things. There's a story, there's a long story there, but it was just necessary to explain it here that 
there's this big fight that happens before 1976. All of this happens before 76. So by 1976, yes. I'm then in the streets of Adelaide. <laughs> well, it's, it just struck me as some kind of seminal moment for you, wasn't it? It was, and I think one one of the things that happened in Adelaide Street that day, um, I actually had come into town from work. I was working at the regional hospital stores in Tapini Street up here, and um, then uh, I was going to go meet my by that time I was now married, and I was going to go meet my wife there who was pregnant, and I walk into the middle of something. So being who I am, and that I joined in, and. Um, at a particular moment, uh, they, were, they were still building this Golden Acre Center there. And this one, it was students and it was workers. And one of the workers from the construction site picked up a brick and he threw it against the police van because there was, the, at that stage, these riot police were not yet in Cape Town. They, they came, like the next day, they threw them in from Pretoria and so on. But that day was the slowest blue uniform policeman and that. And the guys, when he that predicted the thing, he stripped and rounded his hat down. And then of course the whole crowd started laughing at him and so on. And 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 then the riot police started coming in, still the local ones, and they were started shooting tear gas at us. And as I was running, there was a little child, toddler, snot and trying to um, just there was no other people around her. and there were two of us running and the other guy stopped the, the, the tear gas canister with his foot, picked it up and threw it back at the police while I grabbed the child and down the, where the flower sellers were, uh, around the corner and banging on the OK Bazaar's door, people let us in there and I handed over the child. That was a, I had already experienced war type scenarios, uh, um, at, but that was now my Cape Town under war. It was that moment that said, there's no going back here. The whirlwinds before the storm had happened. We are now going into the storm. You've got to take firm decisions about what you're going to do from now on. I had already been, you know, I was now under constant surveillance by the security police and all of that after I'd been released by the military um, and they were coming to my workplace and so on. So a whole range of things were happening at the same time. And I basically had a two year window from 76 to 78 where I could engage in what was semi-clandestine work and so on uh, before I was forced out of the country uh, uh, after some friends got arrested. Heather Garner, you describe as, as the kind of comrade that you resonated with very powerfully. And then 1978, she gets, gets arrested, and there's word that your arrest is imminent, and you put wife and kids into a car on payday, you don't, because you needed to go to the bank to get your pay, I'm sure, and you leave the country via Botswana. Maybe you want to chat about Heather, just what she represents. Look, Heather's my... my She's a very, very private person, so hence there's not a lot written in the book about her. But let me tell you that this is one hell of a woman. You know, she's in her seventies now. She she has she was the ordained Anglican priest. She's practicing Buddhist now. Um, she served in the UN forces in Kosovo during that terrible genocide period. Um, she served in the underground here. She 
uh, was forced to leave South Africa. When to the extent of getting ordained abroad to be able to come back via the Sutu into South Africa in a, until she was forced out again. And to some degree, like me, she also has been resisting the prison and it, 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 it generally stays abroad now. So um, I'm just giving you almost a cryptic little picture of her, but she's like the, the sister I didn't have. In a, in a sense, she's you know, 45 years as friend, something. And we went through all sorts of things. And it was when she was in prison, she managed to get word out of prison to others to get me to leave the country, knowing that I was going to be in a, in a, in a, in a I probably would have done 20 years or something like that if I hadn't been gotten out, or gotten out at that time. So, and then of course in exile we cooperated and worked. Um, our whole lives were dedicated to this, so. There's, there's a lot that can be gleaned from exile, which was particularly interesting to me because um, it, it wasn't something on offer for me um, at the time, but just the kind of experiences there make uh, for some interesting reading in, in, in itself. Uh, I saw a bit of a soft side there as, as well. I think the goat story and the Sangoma telling you to look after the goats and you coming to the rescue of a, of a dog that was going to get killed as well. I, and there's another side that I see coming through from Patrick de Huda in exile. You know, people always think of political people as these hard-nosed, rigid, uh, almost mechanical soldier type people. We're human beings, you know, and you don't lose this human being side of you. And I've always had a spot for animals. And by the way, Marty, uh, St. Martin de Porres is also the, the, the patron of veterinarians and, and, and animals. He used to talk to animals and so on. So also as a kid, you, you have relation, you know, there's a, I don't think I had the story there about the chicken. Can't remember if that one made it through, but when we had a chicken in our yard in Woodstock, which my mother ate, unfortunately. <laughs> but was my friend. <laughs> but so I mean, we 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 now in rural Botswana, and and for me the first exile was in Botswana, and we after shifting about many times we landed up in a small town called Sorowe, mm. and um, and of course it's a it's a rural town with rural norms and regulations and ways of doing things. And I had to learn these, these things. And uh, yes, uh, one time I found some kids that hung a dog in the tree. They were executing this dog. So I got to engage with them to see what they wanted. Maybe I could get the dog out of that situation. And they said, no, he's stealing chickens. And therefore, he must die. But they were also stoning him while he was. So now why are you stoning him then? You know. So they said, no, he needs to learn his lesson before he dies. <laughs> so, so now I had to reason quickly with these children to rescue the dog, and I tried to explain to them, look here, all the millet field, what's one of people's staple is like saw and millets and so on, um, unlike you know, on the eastern Cape where it's maize. So the millet fields are out of town and so on, and there are rodents and there are birds and that, and a dog there has a very useful role. And I explained to them, and I saved the dog. Uh, they, the, the, the boys were a little bit peeved because they were impressing the girls, you know, with their skills. Uh, but the dog got saved in the end. Um, was the dog guilty? 
it was a little feather on his <laughs> So clearly he was he was he was guilty. But in, in, in the rural area too you have something like uh, called a hotla. A hotla is like a village caught under the trees and so on. Now there's one town in Botswana which gets really hit by lightning a lot. A place called Molipolole. And in Molipolole, you know, when lightning hits, people have certain superstitions and things and maybe there's been some witchcraft that work and so on and that. On this particular occasion, this lightning bolt demolished this hut and so on and the the the, the, the old men now were brought the culprit. And the culprit was the certain rooster that had been seen walking past the scene of the crime at that time. So now the courtler had to decide whether this rooster indeed was guilty of doing this deed. He was found guilty. Thereafter, the courtler decided as to what was the punishment of the rooster, whether he should get a real thrashing or whether he should be dispatched. <laughs> and um, it might seem kind of funny, and it is funny uh, in, 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 in some ways, in that, but it's, it's, it's part of rural life. And, and uh, um, they deal, those courtlers deal with much, much more serious things. But the fact of the matter is they deliberate. And they deliberate subtly on, on things, so that when there is some kind of verdict at the end, even though with this animal it was peculiar, but when it's given, it's usually you know well thought through. I learned a lot in, in the other <coughs> I thought I'd, I'd say that particular like moment because at about the same time I think it is uh, your mentor that gets sent a letter bomb by Craig Williamson and her six-year-old. Both of them die. Um, and I'm going to try and wrap up so we can open up the floor. So I'm just going to throw some stuff at you. Uh, you talk about Dulce September as well. Uh, we're talking 1980 now. Dulce September investigating um, uh, arms shipments to South Africa from France. There is um, your application in 1990 to return to Cape Town and Mendy receiving that particular application. Um, and you you say that there's a conservative there's a lurch into a more conservative to 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 the right of the ANC in 1994, which makes for interesting. Uh, and then there's some lighter notes as well. Some lighter notes that plays out at about the time that I that I get to meet Patrick in a in a place called Roofs where there was really great music and Randy Aronson and Ray Brook and. And the gentleman on this side would be chatting about pretty serious stuff uh, in South Africa while the good music was had, and I was fortunate to be part of that conversation from, from time to time. So you can get a sense of what maybe the social scene is like that further informs uh, Patrick's uh, life back here in Cape Town. Uh, he also talks about where he goes to UCT, for example. He works for the Department of Home Affairs where he encounters some corruption. He takes a firm line and he gets chucked out unceremoniously. Um, some of the stuff that you may want to respond to before we open up the conversations before. I, I did get a cue, by the way. I'm not trying to run away. <laughs> Look, there's just so much that it's we so much. can't cover over here. The, the, the one thing to say is that my main job in, in exile was that I ran printing presses. Um, the millions of sheep runs that were distributed clandestinely all over South Africa um, uh, came 
hands with my hands, I did bathroom work, design work, running, printing presses, finishing processes, etc., etc., etc. That was one of my key identities when it came to, to the brand. This logo of the ANC and so on, I was part of the team that developed that brand. And so there was a lot of my life was invested in the liberation movement. Then, of course, we come home and um, it, 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 the way we come home uh, is, is fraught with all its own issues and you'll, you'll read about it there and having to resettle and I, um, I was fortunate enough um, in a sense to be rescued by a wonderful organization that Eric Atmore over there was deputy director of at that time Grassroots Education Trust, Health Education and Training Trust and for those early 90 years while all the negotiations and all of that was going on I was working again amongst poor communities where I feel the most comfortable. Um, then we get post 94 and I go into some analysis of what I think went wrong and where it went wrong and how it went wrong. Um, literally when the ANC was unbanned, only around about 60, 70 people came back here. And they came back here and within a month and a half or so, created literally a totally new organization. Opened the doors up, bunch of stunt people, all sorts of people came in, collaborators. In the meanwhile, people were still in jail for three years. People were still in camps for three years, in exile. Um, others were still kept in the underground and so on. Um, and for a long period, the, the, the pivot in the ANC became think tanks. And these think tanks were made up largely of university personnel and so on and this kind of thing. And slowly we actually saw what we fought for, not materializing before 94. Uh, already it was a totally different kettle of fish that was coming about. And the best that we could hope for was some kind of um, social democratic order. But we didn't even get that. We got, you know, a, a more or less a kind of liberal democratic um, dispensation, and we got a wonderful constitution that was based on people being saints. Um, and we all know that life doesn't work that way. So it didn't have the kind of checks and balances that we needed really to hold anybody to an account. Also, we had fought, you know, as the printer and all the documentation, I think our main slogan was forward to people power. Democracy, demos kratos, people power. That's what we fought for. Instead, we got party power. Mm. And you have a scenario that people actually do not vote for their representatives. They vote for a party which decides who the representatives are going to be. And we have 38 million people in South Africa who are eligible to vote. 26 million of them register. And in the last local government elections, only 12 million of them voted. And the majority party got around 6 million. So 6 million people out of 60 million people are being represented. This is the democracy, not the democracy we fought for. So I, I, I elaborate on some of that, but also with my, my thoughts about what happened in the 80s that was part of the process of getting us to where we landed up in the 90s. Um, it was a... It was a struggle that was stolen from the people struggling. Um, it became that the, the solution that was created was done by elites and imposed on us. Yet, 
if you go back to the kind of discussions that that people like us were having at a at a, a, a an ordinary soldier cadre level, the democracy that we envisage was not this kind of thing where we've got one of the most expensive systems in the world, nine, ten parliaments. Um, with, you know, you take the top leading countries in the world, their maximum of cabinet ministers are usually between 17 and 22. Our ministers and deputies are 75, and that's not counting the nine provinces. And with this very expensive system, we're still not getting democracy. Because at the end of the day, the ordinary citizen doesn't have the chance to elect somebody in their area, for their area, that they know and can pull if that person doesn't perform. <laughs> um, I talk about that type of thing in, in future data. I'm just giving you an overview. So, um, yeah, I think just one thing that I neglected to mention was an annual encounter there. He's a master of science that he attains later in his life. And given that kind of childhood that was sketched briefly here this evening, um, I think a wonderful little achievement uh, on his behalf later on in his life. Ladies and gentlemen, my privilege to introduce you then to Patrick William Tarek Malay.